Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On February 4th, 65-year-old Marvin Pines died in custody at Rikers Island, New York City's largest jail complex, marking the first death of an inmate there this year. In November, Pines pleaded guilty to multiple drug charges and was set to be sentenced at the end of the month. Quote, on Saturday morning, I got a call from the legal department indicating that shortly after 6 a.m., he had a seizure and he passed away, end quote, Javier Damien, Pine's attorney, told Yahoo News. Quote, he was terrified about going to jail because he was concerned about his health. The death toll at Rikers Island hit a record high in 25 years in 2022, after 19 people died in custody or shortly after being released. When Jay-Z's Team Rock, the social justice arm of the rap mogul's entertainment company, first filed federal lawsuits in early 2020 on behalf of over 200 prisoners at the Mississippi State Penitentiary in Parchman, the inmates alleged revolting conditions, rat feces, cockroaches, and bird droppings contaminating their meals, broken lights, toilets, and showers in a perpetual state of systemic failure, and a deprivation of medical care that required the self-treatment of wounds. The accusations were so alarming that the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division launched an investigation around that time across Mississippi's prison system in the wake of a string of violent deaths, lockdowns, and protests outside the state capitol to shut it down, referring to Parchman. But over the last couple of years, conditions at the prison seem to have improved, enough so that last week Team Rock agreed to dismiss the claims in its lawsuit against the Mississippi Department of Corrections, signaling that one of Parchman's fiercest critics is holding fire. Time will tell. On February 5th, Ecuadorians voted no on a constitutional amendment that would allow for the extradition of Ecuadorians suspected to have engaged in transnational organized crime. The majority of suspects would be extradited to stand trial in the United States and, if found guilty, would be incarcerated within the U.S. prison system. Such extradition policies are common throughout Latin America, the most notable being the extradition of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman from Mexico in 2019. Proponents of the amendment claim that the measure would cut crime and create more space in overcrowded Ecuadorian prisons. The increasing influence of drug syndicates in Ecuador has driven up violent crime and flooded prisons, many of which are now under the complete control of narco gangs. Critics deny that such a measure would resolve the issue of growing drug-related crime in the Andean country, and the failure of the measure is largely seen as a reflection of the growing resurgence of leftist political parties in Ecuador. Detainees held in two California ICE facilities have gone on hunger strike. The Mesa Verde Prison in Bakersfield and the Golden State Annex are both privately run by the GEO Group. Immigrants launched the strike on February 17th, demanding that California's minimum wage of $15.50 per hour apply to prisoners, also for safe working conditions, decent food, medical care, and improved ventilation. Minju Cho, a staff attorney with the Immigrants' Rights Program at the ACLU of Northern California, said that the immigrants quote, articulated their specific demands to the facility and to ICE, and none of them have been met. 
That's why they are escalating to a hunger strike. Unquote. A state's plan held to spend the remaining $25 billion in federal COVID relief funds. Some also are facing criticism and renewed scrutiny over how they allocated money already received from the American Rescue Plan Act. Of the $198 billion authorized by Congress in 2021, $173 billion already has been appropriated by states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. Much of the money went, as it was intended, to deal with the COVID-19 public health emergency, but civil rights groups and think tanks focused on economic and tax policy have pointed out the money has gone to build prisons, offset tax cuts, and fund initiatives completely counter to improving public health. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a nonpartisan research institute, has analyzed the ARPA fund appropriations since 2021, and in a January report says that many have used the funds constructively toward economic recovery, but it also suggests that states need to use the remaining funds to help people most affected by the pandemic and prevent long-term damage to health, education, and social services in states. In 2021, Alabama allocated $400 million, almost 20% of its funds, towards the construction of two new prisons. In Arizona, $4.2 million in recovery funds was designated to fund offices for Department of Corrections staff. In its January letter to the Treasury Department, the ACLU urged the Deputy Inspector General to investigate the use of ARPA funds for jail and prison expansions, saying such construction does not mitigate the effects of COVID-19 and does not fall under any of the eligible uses of ARPA funds. And now we continue our conversation between Nicole Siegel and Anne Gray Fisher about Fisher's recent book, The Streets Belong to Us, Sex, Race, and Police Power from Segregation to Gentrification. After World War II, you discovered Los Angeles was an epicenter for anti-Black sexual policing. Will you tell us please about the changes there how did the policing of white and black women diverge in LA? And how did the liberalization of sexuality, you know, this famous in Bloomington Kinsey associated liberalization of sexuality, how did that affect sexual policing? Um, also, how did policing black women function to discipline black neighborhoods and people to resist civil rights demands to contain black protest? And then how did African-Americans respond and resist these oppressive tactics by the police and by politicians? And how did Black protest itself change over this period? Yeah, so after World War II, so the I'll just say the first, so we've talked about a prologue in two chapters by now in the book. Those are all national. They're looking everywhere. They try to look at different regions, the North, the South, the West. Um, some in the Midwest too. Um, and then the next uh, three chapters, I try to just go dive into individual cities, Los Angeles um, after World War II, Boston in the late 60s and 70s, and then Atlanta in the 70s and 80s to try to really track what's happening on the ground. And um, so this post-war LA moment is really uh, I think this is when we really start to see the new regime taking place. This is when white women 
Um, so I'll stop. I'll stop right there and then just and rewind a little. So what's happening in LA? We still we see an, a continuation of the valorization of police from World War II. A, a major site of police consolidation of power by the famous LAPD chief Parker. And he's very explicit about how he thinks that black neighborhoods are sites of criminal disorder, how he thinks that he call in his own words, you know, prostitution itself is a major site of um, moral decay. And he, you know, is and it's Parker who establishes the idea of the police as the thin blue line between, you know, order and chaos. Mm. So that's continuing. So the the valorization of police is happening in in LA. Um, that's ongoing. And what we also have ongoing is black neighborhoods being destinations for middle-class white men to go and engage in commercial sex. So that is ongoing. So Black neighborhoods continue to be degraded as sites of, of vice. What's changing, however, is, as you said, among social scientists like Bloomington's Kinsey, I was very grateful to get to go to the Kinsey archives when I was living in Bloomington. Um, so among social scientists, among kind of liberal lawyers, and other kind of like civil liberties activists, we're starting to see folks say that sex laws, the idea that sex is only legal inside of a hetero marriage is totally out of line with sexual practices as they are actually happening on the ground. Yeah, this um, is the moment of sexual mores really changing, right? This is the moment when um, sex outside of marriage and outside of reproduction begins to be acceptable in, in the United States in public discourse, because it always was in practice. Right, right. I mean, and it's it's kind of a moment of reckoning because if police were supposed to always be enforcing sexual order, they clearly failed, right? Because this is a key moment um, where all of a sudden folks are recognizing that sexual practices are being criminalized that are very common, right, uh, throughout the U.S. It's a particularly alarming because the 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 supposed, you know, pure the supposed cornerstones of the moral order, white women are also engaging in sex outside of marriage, and um, you know, are also engaging in um, these otherwise criminalized practices. So we get to the point where there is, um, as one social scientist said, um, a huge population of law-abiding lawbreakers, right? So essentially middle-class white folks who are otherwise lawful citizens who are breaking the law through their sexual practices. And there's a big push to bring contemporary sex laws into closer alignment with actual sexual practices. And so you have um, a lot of reforms in the early 1960s. This is happening nationwide, but I'm able to tell the story through California and Los Angeles. The ways that um, the old progressive era laws that had made, that had defined prostitution, I'm using air quotes, that had defined prostitution as any kind of sex outside of marriage, those laws were being significantly narrowed or thrown out by the California Supreme Court. Um, and so you start to see laws 
uh, shifting that recognize that are actually narrowing definitions of sexual criminality. But as you said, this is also a time, this is, uh, you know, this is also a time when LA has um, not only a growing population of black residents, uh, a lot of it due to World War II migration, um, but they're being crammed into a tiny sector of the city because of segregation. And um, so uh, the, the conservative white residents of LA, by which when I say conservative white, I mean most of the, the, the business aligned um, residents of LA, the LA Times is the voice of this community are like really concerned about containing blackness in, in the city. So the question then becomes, well, how do we relax sex laws so that white law abiding lawbreakers won't be subject to arrest but preserve police discretion to continue to arrest black people. And they find that through sexual policing and they find that through the discretionary targeting of black neighborhoods. And so I tell the story through um, a few different court cases where essentially one white woman who in any other period in the book, right? Any other period since the civil war would have absolutely been arrested and convicted of um, some some violation of uh, the moral code, I think in this case, disorderly conduct, where this woman, Betty, her charges get dismissed and Chief Parker himself is actually, uh, is in a very rare turn, um, repentant, you know, she shouldn't have been arrested at all for, um, she was just picked up because she had, I think birth control and a beer opener in her um, on her possessions, and um, so you know an example of the broad discretion police had to arrest any white women. Um, this was not enough in the end, and in a sign of how the politics of prostitution policing were shifting, Betty, the white woman's charge gets dismissed. But at the same time, we're seeing a ramping up of stings, crackdowns, raids, mass policing happening in Black neighborhoods. The story ends in the mid-1960s as more and more Black residents are calling out the widening inequality that they see between how Black women are treated by, how sexually profiled Black women are treated by police and sexually profiled white women. They're saying, they're, and the statistics are eye-popping. The statistics bear this out. There's a huge drop in the number of white women being arrested on prostitution charges and a huge increase in the number of Black women being arrested on prostitution-related charges. And the Black residents are like, this is, this is, outrageous. This is a key example. Not only you're going to like, not only the degradation of our city by all these white men streaming through, uh, accosting any black woman they see on cities on, in their own neighborhood. But then on top of that, white women are being released from police targeting and we're getting more and more arrested. We're getting more and more targeted. Um, and so they're really outraged by this inequality. I've, um, there's one 
Um, I, I, like I said, really rely on the black press to tell the story about what's happening here. And, you know, one black journalist in LA is like, well, surely there's, as in his words, Caucasian prostitutes in Caucasian neighborhoods, but they're not getting arrested. So, you know, what is going on? Why the, 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 um, the unequal and intensifying policing of black neighborhoods that they saw through sexual policing was a clear sign of um, the, the degraded treatment and the violence that they were subject to. By the mid 1960s, when there's a call for yet another crackdown in black neighborhoods for prostitution and drugs, there are, there are skirmishes and uprisings and protests all weekend long as LAPD are trying to round up people and load them onto buses for morals offenses. And people are actively, Black residents are actively blocking arrest, refusing to let police arrest women. You can really see how um, the Black residents identify sexual policing as a key source of and symbol of uh, the brutal treatment they're receiving from, from cops and closes with one activist saying that, you know, uh, and I wish I had the quote handy, but the, the treatment we receive that whites don't for sexual policing um, is one key reason why there was so much resistance to police over that one particular weekend when there were all the crackdowns. And so we often think of Watts, the Watts uprising in 1965 as a key moment of Black residents in LA protesting police violence. But there are actually a lot of other such incidents, smaller um, and less, um, and that have received less attention. But none, nevertheless, leading up to Watts, there were absolutely Black resistance, Black protests, um, Black residents actively refusing the authority and the legitimacy of police trying to make an arrest motivated by the racist deployment of sexual policing that they saw in their in their neighborhood mm -hmm. once again a very sharp diagnosis of the problem by the people who are subject to the most grossly disproportionate policing absolutely yeah yeah annie i really appreciate how much this book is really a book about, about protest against policing, not only about the policing laws. And even though you're working largely from police archives, your use of the press really does allow you to see uh, of the press, of the Black press and of, the, of, of mainstream coverage of things like protests and revolts. It, it really allows you to see the dissent, the resistance to policing alongside the policing. It's a great double view. Thank you for it. Oh, thank you. It was really important to me. I know I would often hear frustration from students that they wanted more of this story told through um, the women themselves who are policed or our activists. And there's always a section, right, where I talk about the many forms of pushback and resistance. But I also thought it was really important just to showcase police logics and practices, because very often the police are saying the quiet part out loud. And I thought that was really important that we um, have sort of a playbook because the police, we have a playbook for what police do um, when they're faced with either, you know, a, 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 an attack on their legitimacy or their authority. 
because police do recycle a lot of the same plays over and over again. And I thought yeah. it was really important to, to just have in one place the police logic itself alongside, right, the activism and the protest, because I think we can learn a lot from both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us about that in the context of Boston or Atlanta, the two case studies that come next in the book, Boston in the 60s and 70s, Atlanta in the 70s and 80s. You emphasize how important police discretion is to sexual policing. So I'm coming back again to police discretion. Maybe you even want to say what police discretion is just to get that out on the table. But will you will you tell us a story, maybe one story from Boston, one story from Atlanta that you think particularly illustrate the issues with the discretionary part of policing? Yes, absolutely. I think it's really important to name that when I talk about police discretion, which is just basically a cop, you know, scanning a street and identifying, right, who to target and for what reason, for whatever reason they have in their head. I'm not here to psychologize the the work that they're doing, but I think it's really important to historicize the choices police make. So, and this is not about an individual story about one police, but this is a historicizing that police themselves are so steeped in the ideological narratives of what is normative, what is legal, what is not, you know, um, that we can actually see over time, right, how police operate once we start to think in terms of the ideological, that police are enforcing ideological norms, right, which which are rooted in, you know, that, like I said, going back to the, the racist and sexist hierarchy of white middle class womanhood being, um, you know, pure, normative, legal, and impoverished, um, or even middle class Black womanhood being degraded, criminal, if nothing else, suspect. So when we talk about discretion, yes, it's a, it's an individual cop um, on the street, but it also reflects a much broader and structural um, kind of enforcement that's happening um, on the grounds. I can actually smush Boston and Atlanta together. I will say that- That's, That sounds geographically <laughs> difficult, but you know, you can do it. You'll, you'll be the next hurricane. <laughs> I will say, so Boston and Atlanta are basically asking the question, so that the lesson that the LAPD learns after the uprisings, and they're very clear about this, the the archives are very clear that what what the police, what the LAPD learns and um, what becomes sort of a national um, sort of axiom of policing, is that the way to contain Blackness, right? Or as you said originally in your original question, the way to discipline Blackness is through mass saturation of police and through targeting Black residents for low-level crimes, right? Um, So when Black residents rose up to challenge the inequities of the treatment between white and black women, the LAPD doubled down 
on mass policing, mass sexual policing of black women, gambling and, and other forms of like vice or low level drugs and gambling um, community wide, but sex policing for, for black women in particular. The lesson that they learned from these uprisings throughout the sixties is to double down on containing blackness with low level police enforcement, uh, with the police enforcement of low level crimes. So Boston and Atlanta then become two different ways. You know, how does a sort of liberal northern city and how does a southern city that is newly, that has finally and historically has black leadership, how do both of these cities across the 60s and 70s land at the same place that LA got at in the 60s, right? How do they both land at this idea that, uh, which we now call broken windows policing, um, that what cities need is this mass saturation of police engaging in relentless low-level misdemeanor policing. Both Boston and Atlanta land there. They're prefiguring, they're both in distinct ways prefiguring broken windows ideas. Broken windows, the sort of, um, in order to to make cities profitable, to make cities quote unquote livable, to make cities thrive, uh, police need to engage in this mass misdemeanor arrest and banishment of people who are deemed quote unquote disorderly. Um, that idea is introduced in 1982, maybe, um, in the Atlantic by criminologists and political scientists, James Q. Wilson and, um, and George Kelling. So Boston and Atlanta are looking at the ways in which broken windows policing gets prefigured um, on the ground, but in different regions um, with different sort of political constraints. Both Boston and Atlanta are um, struggling with economic disinvestment, particularly from white corporations and white homeowners who are decamping to the suburbs because they think that the cities are too black. In Boston, the story is one more of sexual liberalism. The question is how to bring white capital back to the city while also making space for this new kind of sexual tourist economy that they want to build. Um, and so Boston tries to take its notorious vice district, the combat zone, and transform it into sort of a playground for white middle-class suburbanites, try to keep them in the city, um, and to also sort of lift the, the image of the city itself so it's not quote-unquote seedy and becomes instead a site uh, for capital investment. It's really way quite striking the way that Bo the, the name that Bostonians have for their red light district, the combat zone. I mean, particularly <laughs> given, you know, the like the circulation of war metaphors that Stuart Schrader talks about in his wonderful book on the relationship of domestic and foreign policing. It's just it's a really it's quite redolent metaphorically. Absolutely. And well, and one of the ways to sort of 
to sort of uh, whitewash the violence is by renaming it the adult entertainment district, right? Uh, so yeah, Boston yeah. tries to have the adult entertainment district. And that chapter is also really important too, because you can see how Black women in this new downtown area, the adult entertainment district are seen as the problem. And legal mechanisms, a variety of legal me mechanisms, including banishment, are put in place to essentially pick up, arrest, and banish any Black woman on site in the newly uh, branded adult entertainment district, right? That mm -hmm. sexual commerce and sexual liberalism are really only for whites. This has been KiteLine. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>